Back in Colossians chapter 1, we've been trying to make our way through uh, this wonderful book, and we've been slow at it uh, because it's so rich and so deep. But the title of our message here today is Maximum Ministry. Franklin Graham, who's the son of the world-renowned evangelist Billy Graham, uh, tells a story in one of his books about his father as a young man, how that early on in his life, uh, even then, the Lord was dealing with Billy to become a preacher. And the story goes that one day, Billy and his older brother Melvin had been given a chore of plowing a field with a team of mules. The story goes that Billy did the work kind of reluctantly, mostly daydreaming about bigger and better things. Uh, meanwhile, the other brother, Melvin, was focused on doing the work. And if you've ever worked with a sibling... You know what that's all about. It seems like one person ends up always doing most of the work, especially if it's washing dishes, right, Tracy? Uh, but they both uh, took a break during their plowing, and they stopped their work. Their attention was drawn to a strange sight in the sky. It was a single-engine airplane, which was a rare sight in the countryside of 1930s in North Carolina. And they watched it across a canvas of Carolina blue sky, that little plane, twisted some smoky shapes out into a message. The two farm boys, as they peered upwards, they saw the letters in the sky, G-P-G. Billy shouted. He said, Melvin, look at that. You know what those letters mean? G-P-G. That means go preach the gospel. Well, Melvin, uh, he replied and brought Billy's head out of the clouds. He thumped Billy on the chest and he said, Shucks, Billy, that ain't what that means. GPG, that means go plow the ground. <laughs> I love that story because I think it gives us a window into how the calling of God works. I can attest to that. When God gets a hold of somebody, when God has truly called a man or a woman to serve Him, you can't escape it no matter what you are doing or where you are. The calling of God follows you into all areas of life. I had a wise mentor, a brother Johnny Tiller. He was on my ordination council. He was also my childhood pastor. He told me these words. He said, son, if you can do anything besides preach the gospel, then do it. However, if you feel that you can't do anything but preach the gospel then do it. And I've always thought those were great words of direction and wisdom. Now, you may be thinking this morning as you sit out there, well, I'm not a preacher. I haven't been called as an evangelist. Uh, God hasn't sent word to me to be going to the mission field, so I guess that means I'm off the hook. Well, I can tell you that God hasn't called anybody here today to be a pew potato. God isn't done with you. Uh, why, if that were true, He would have raptured you the moment that you believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. Friend, we are saved to serve. We may not all be preachers, but we can all be reachers, reaching our family, our schools, our neighborhoods, our co-workers for Christ. I like what uh, the late Mother Teresa is credited with saying. She said, quote, Not all of us are called to do great things, but we can all do small things. With great love. God is not looking for ability. What's He looking for? Availability. 
And it doesn't matter if you're a preacher or a deacon. It doesn't matter if your ministry at the church is in the kitchen or on the janitor staff. It doesn't matter if you're a baby Christian or a senior saint, a stay-at-home mom or a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. If you are born again and saved, listen to me, God has a ministry for you. Now in the last verses here of Colossians 1, Paul talks about how God used him in the ministry. And Paul explains here that every Christian can have what I call maximum ministry because we all have a great ally to help us accomplish that. It's in verse 27. Very briefly, let's look at it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I'm going to build the message around that thought right there. And the idea of maximum ministry, we can have max ministry in three important areas. And Paul gives us that here in Colossians 1. The first one, as you're taking notes today, number one, because of Christ in us, we can rejoice in suffering. We've already seen a testimony of that this morning during our praise time. Because of Christ in us, we can rejoice in in suffering. Notice what verse 24 says in our text. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Now friend, it's amazing to think that when Paul penned these words... He was in a dark, rat-infested Roman prison. His hands and his feet were in chains. And yet amidst his problem and his pain, Paul made the choice to rejoice. And we all have to make that decision when our valley is deep and when our problems are many. Will we make the choice to rejoice. Now, don't get twisted up in verse 24 by a cryptic phrase that is here where Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Did you see that there? Now, Paul is not saying that somehow our suffering on earth can complete our salvation. Remember, when Jesus died on the cross, what did He say? He cried out, It is finished. There's nothing that we can add to what He has already done. It's all of grace and none of works, lest any man should boast. Notice who Paul is talking about, though. For the sake of His body, that is the church. What Paul is saying here is this. That through our suffering and our sacrifice, we can extend the reach of the gospel to new people and new places. Think of it this way. I wrote this down in my notes this week. Jesus' suffering provides the means of salvation. And through our suffering, we proclaim the message of salvation. That God is good even when things are bad. That God attends to our needs when it seems like there are no answers. That when doctors are baffled and when resources are depleted, we have an opportunity in the midst of our suffering to say, I know it looks bad on the outside, but there's joy on the inside. Let me tell you about what God is doing in the midst of my trial. Jesus' suffering provides the means of salvation, and when we suffer, we can proclaim the message 
of salvation. That No, to be a Christian uh, doesn't mean that life is going to be a bed of roses. Your bank account won't always be full. Your health bill won't always be clear. But God is still God. He's still on the throne. He's still got a purpose and a plan for that pain. I may not understand it, but I choose to rejoice and give praise because I know that my God has a good end for all things. You see, Paul saw his suffering not so much as an obstacle, but he saw it as an opportunity. His chains were not a dreaded punishment, they were a divine privilege. Let me show you a parallel passage over in Philippians chapter 1. Paul also writing in prison there. Listen to what he says, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and the rest that my, watch this, my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's affliction, he said, look, this is an advantage. God has providentially used this in my life and in my ministry. Let me tell you how. You see, while he was assigned to that prison, there were guards who were coming in for every day as they changed shifts. They would be chained to Paul. Oh, wouldn't you have liked to have been chained to the greatest evangelist that's ever lived? I guarantee you he gave him a three-point message and maybe some sub-points thrown in there. They may have not went away saved the first time, but when they came back for shift number two, he said, let me pick up where I left off last time. And he told them about Jesus. He said, look, don't be sorry for me. I can't come to you, but God is sending people to me to preach the gospel to them. And oh, by the way, while I'm in here, I think I'll write you a letter or two. I'll be your mentor. I'll be your teacher. I'll be your pen pal from far away. And friend, I'm telling you, it served to benefit the church because today when I open my Bible, I've got 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul. God used his suffering to benefit the church. And the message that I preach today is evidence of that from a man who rejoiced in his suffering. He wrote it down and God preserved it for 2,000 years. What a great God we have. Mark it down, friend. At some point in your ministry, God is going to ask you to suffer. It's not a matter of if, but it's when. And in times of suffering, we may not like what is happening to us, but we can take joy in what God is doing in us and through us. You see, I know that when I come through the trial, I'm not going to be the same that I was when I first went in the valley. God's going to do a work inside of me. He's going to make me more grateful. He's going to deepen my faith. He's going to use it as a testimony later on to others of His faithfulness. Only good can come from it. You see, like Paul, God can use our suffering to further the reach of the gospel and to bring others to a saving knowledge of Him. I made a list this week. All the things that God does in our lives when we go through hard times. It's a multifaceted work. Look at this list that I made. It should be coming up on the screen. Suffering deepens our faith. Suffering develops our prayer life. Oh, you learn how to pray harder and more fervent when things are going against you. Suffering decreases our love of this world. Reminds us that this world isn't our home. And suffering displays the presence of God in our life, according to John 16, 33. 
in suffering, we discover new things about God. Job said, I knew of God by the hearing of the ear, but now I see Him with my own eyes. Suffering, listen to this, deploys us into greater ministry for God. I'm thankful for the things that God has sent me through because it makes me a better pastor. Makes me a better daddy. Makes me a better husband. Gives me compassion and a heart for the people that God has called me to shepherd. So oftentimes when we're going through suffering though, you know what we pray? Lord, get me out of this. You know what Paul is telling us here? Instead we ought to pray, Lord, what do you want me to get out of this? You see, if it wasn't for the hardship, we wouldn't see the hand of God. If it wasn't for the burden, we wouldn't know the greater blessing later on. I'm telling you, if you want to be encouraged, read the writings of Johnny Erickson Tata. This is a lady who knows what suffering is about. For 50 years, she has been trapped in a broken quadriplegic body. She's been confined to a wheelchair. But it is precisely because of her suffering that God has given her such an incredible ministry. In one of her books, she tells a story of how she went to the country of India. And she has an organization called Wheels for the World. See, in a lot of these third world and impoverished nations, you have so many people who can't walk and they don't have access or they don't have means to get a wheelchair. And one of Johnny's ministries is they go into these impoverished countries with wheelchairs. They fit them for these precious people, and then they give them a wheelchair, and they, of course, teach them the gospel. Well, Johnny tells a story that they went into one little city that was way, way out, remote in the countryside. And they said that there was one little girl there who had been waiting for days in line to get one of those wheelchairs. They said that as that little girl came up to get her wheelchair, that she had a copy of Johnny's book in her hand. A book that she had written long ago. A book detailing how she became paralyzed and how she pleaded with God to rescue her and God to heal her. And God said no. And this little girl had somehow in India got a copy of that book, read about it, understood the gospel, believed in Jesus, and brought that to Johnny and said, when I get my wheelchair, will you please sign this? Here's what Johnny Erickson taught us said. She said, my friends, this is a one of a million reasons why I am grateful God did not heal me of paralysis. I said, let me say that again. I'm thankful that God did not heal me of paralysis, she said. If God had answered my prayers as a 17-year-old and returned me to a normal life, uh, there would have been no Joni book and no wills for the world ministry. I know today, she said, why I wasn't healed because God had plans for my life that were higher, deeper, and more profound than I ever could have imagined. Because of Christ in us, we can rejoice in suffering. And that's not something that's just academic. I've seen it in my own life. I could tell you, and I have told you in past about my, my godly grandmother, my, my memo, Aline McCarson. She passed away in 1991 of colon cancer. And you would hear that and say, well, that's awful. And it was at the time, this, this godly woman, this, this precious woman who was responsible for taking my daddy, uh, my uncles and my aunt to church, uh, she was the spiritual leader in my daddy's home. And there she suffered at the end of her life so greatly, taken from us, uh, even in her 50s, 
by this dreaded cancer. But I tell you what God did through that. You see, because God made my family walk through the valley of cancer, it did something in my daddy's life. And dad will be the first to tell you that it was really in that valley that he began to take prayer seriously. And he started to cry out to God. And God did a work in the heart of my daddy. And don't you know that what happens in dad's life transfers on down the line to the rest of the family. And because dad started taking God seriously, because dad started praying and reading his Bible and taking his family to church, it went down the line from one child to another. And praise God, I'm telling you today, I believe one of the reasons that I'm standing before you preaching this gospel is because God had the wisdom to allow my mamma to have cancer because he knew in the long run what that was going to do in the spiritual life of a family. Friend, I'm telling you, that's a sovereign God who can even use something like suffering to benefit and to grow his kingdom. We can rejoice in suffering. Then look at this, number two. Because of Christ in us, we can raise up the saints. We can raise up the saints. Now, a second way of maximum ministry is to be involved and invested in the work of God's church. And in these very dense verses that we're going to look at, Paul explains, he first gives a theological, and then he gives a practical side of church ministry. Notice, under this heading, the mystery of the church, verse 25, listen to what he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice the mystery of the church. You see, up until this point in history, the church had been a divine secret, privy only to those members of the Trinity. And that's why Paul mentions the church in this verse as a mystery. You see it there in verse 26. Now, don't get tripped up by that. It, Paul isn't thinking of a, like a whodunit mystery like uh, Perry Mason or Matt Locke or Sherlock Holmes or CSI. He's not talking about that. In the New Testament sense, a mystery is a divine truth of God that had been hidden from the eyes and the knowledge of men until the, the fullness of time, and then God revealed it. The Greek word in here, mystery, means something hidden beyond man's knowledge what is now revealed. You see, what he's saying here is that the idea of the church was not something that any prophet or man of God foresaw in the Old Testament. This is what has been called the mountain peaks of prophecy. Let me show you an image. It should be coming up on the screen. The mountain peaks of prophecy. You see, when the Old Testament prophets looked forward in time and God gave them clarity on the future, 
They saw two great mountain peaks. They saw the first coming of Christ, and they saw the second coming of Christ. But what they did not see was that valley in between the mountains. That's the church age. That's the age in which we presently live. That's why Paul says for so long that was a mystery, but now we understand it. A God through His Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. He infilled us. And now opened the doors of heaven, and He says, I don't only want the Jews in, I want the Gentiles to be a part of this redemption plan. You see, in the Old Testament, God had a temple for His people. But now in the New Testament, God has a people for His temple, indwelt, infilled, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul says, look, this is the hope of the nations that God has redeemed folk from every nation, kingdom, tribe, and tongue. And it's all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I'm just praising God to be a part of it. Listen to what John Stott wrote about this. This will charge you this morning. Look at this. The church is central to history. The open secret is that the church, the new humanity, a multiracial, multinational third race will rule the universe along with Christ and the angels. And in the midst of the swirling tides of Marxism, revived militant Islam, and virulent atheism, only the church will be standing at the end of time, when the dust settles. Hey, men, Jesus said to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, I am building my church. Friend, the church is the mystery of history. It's the ultimate underdog story of all time. How can a people with no worldly wisdom, a people with no worldly resources, no power, no money, how can this church endure for so long? How can a church who's so persecuted and opposed by Satan and hated by the world still be a force for good and still be moving forward for the gospel? Oh friend, empires come and go. Presidents and kings rise and fall. But I'm telling you, the church of Jesus Christ just keeps marching on into glory. Why? Because it's ordained of God. Uh, you can't understand it all. It's a mystery how God can use weak feeble sinners like you and me to keep His work going. I don't understand it all. I just believe it all and I thank God that He called me one day in a little Baptist church. I could take you to the pew and show you where He came to me and said, here's a mysterious thing, Derek. Try and wrap your mind around this. I'm going to use you, you old South Harmony country boy, to preach my gospel. I said, Lord, I can't do it. That's the mystery. That's the mystery. Lord, I can't do it. Oh, but then a voice inside of me said, It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, friend, what a mystery that the church has. We can raise up the saints, build the church, and keep it forward according to God's plan. My, my. Kent Hughes tells a great story in one of his books about how, how God builds the church it's not the way you and I would think of it listen to this a missionary in Africa led a woman to Christ the woman was excited and thankful for what the Lord had done and so she decided she was going to do something for Jesus no matter what that cost but the only problem was she was blind she was uneducated 
She was dirt poor, and she was 70 years old. Now, you'd look at that and say, I don't think God can use you. So this dear lady went to the missionary with her French Bible, and she said, show me the verse that you used to lead me to Jesus. And she took her there, John 3.16. She said, underline it in red. So the missionary underlined it in red marker. The missionary was mystified. She said, what is this lady going to do? Well, she took her little Bible and she sat out in front of the school one afternoon. And she waited for the boys and girls to come out to recess and to, to come outside. And when school dismissed, she would call one student over. And say, come here, little one. See this right here? This verse underlined in red? Read that to me. And the little boy or the little girl would read John 3.16. And she said, now you know what that means? And then she would begin to tell her story about how God saved her. About how God loved them. About how Jesus died for them and rose from the grave. And you know what happened in that, that old woman's life? The missionary said that she only lived five years after that. But in that time, she had led dozens of kids to the Lord and 24 young men were called to the gospel ministry from that little lady's ministry. I'm telling you, it's a mystery of what God can do. But then also look at this, the ministry of the church. Verse 28, not only the ministry, but the ministry. Verse 28, Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice that phrase, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's an allusion to discipleship. You see, the way that we have maximum ministry is not only by allowing Christ to change us, but to be involved in the lives of people so that we help them nurture and grow and know Christ in a deeper way. That's why the church has been going on for almost 2,000 years, because of discipleship. Taking one believer at a time, training them, growing them, grooming them, and helping them to know Christ. You see, the genius of disciple-making is that it adds to the church by multiplication and not just addition. What do you mean by that? Well, think of it this way. If you lead one person to Christ, that's great. And we should celebrate that. But you know what's more impactful? If we lead one person to Christ and then teach that person how to lead somebody to Christ. You see, the goal of raising up saints in the ministry of the church is ultimately that we create disciples who can spiritually reproduce themselves in the lives of other people. Think of this. I, I did the math, and I know I'm not a math major, but bear with me. If you lead a thousand people to Christ every year for ten years, that would be ten thousand conversions. However, if you lead three people to Christ, disciple them, and train each one to reach three other people, and everyone that was discipled in turn reached three, three other people each year, if you multiply that process over the same ten years, the number of disciples becomes 59,049. That's the exponential growth of disciple-making. And let me tell you something. It's a pa as a pastor, it's a joy to walk around church on Sunday morning or on Wednesday or whenever we're meeting and see children being taught. 
I'm thankful for little muddy handprints and scrapes on the wall. I'm thankful that we have little feet running around this place. And people who work with children, you have a tremendous opportunity to make a disciple young, to plant the gospel in them as a young person and see God do things through those many years. What a blessing. And we have to beg, steal, and borrow to try and get people to work with kids. They're the most fertile ground to work with. My wife's not in here right now, but can I take a minute and just brag on my wife? Let me tell you about what my woman does. She loves discipleship. She, she's on these Bible reading plans. So she goes on her phone and she's on the Bible app and there's a Bible reading plan. They have all kinds of them and she signs up for one. And then she recruits half a dozen other women to join her into doing the, the daily Bible reading. And they get together on their phones and they read the Bible plan and then they type in their little thoughts and what God is showing them and their prayers and what God's doing in their life. And, and my wife is so faithful at it. There's many times when I'm nodding off and drool's running down my face in bed and I, I look over and she's over there in the middle of the night and she, the glow of that phone. I say, what are you doing? She said, I'm doing my discipleship. Friend, I'm telling you, there ain't nobody that's got a busier schedule than my wife does. Raising three children, running a home, being on the praise team, teaching on Sunday mornings and Wednesdays. And friend, if she's got time to do discipleship, we all have time to do it. So here's the question I need to ask you. Who are you discipling right now? You older folk, grab somebody who's younger and say, let me tell you about what God has done in my life. Let me pour some wisdom into your life because I need it as a young person. Find a younger brother or a sister in the faith and start investing in them. And you moms, moms, I'm telling you, moms beat themselves up because they think, well, I can't do as much as everybody else because I've got youngins. Let me tell you, mom's got the greatest calling in the world because she puts the gospel in the hearts of those little ones. And a woman who can raise her family to love Jesus Christ, she shall be praised. The Bible says in Proverbs 31, she's more precious than rubies. So moms, think about the little lives that you have. Dad, think about the little lives that you have. Granddads and grandparents. To disciple those young people to love Jesus and to live for Him. I'm finished with this. Number three. Because of Christ, we can rely on His strength. We can raise up the saints. We can rely on His strength. We can rejoice in suffering. Look at verse 29 and I'm done. For this I toil, struggling, here it is, with all energy, that He powerfully works within me. You see that? We can rely on His strength. Maximum ministry cannot be done in the power of man alone. This is a trap that the church has fallen into. Preachers think, if I just get the lights right, if I get the fog right, if I have the right musicians on stage, if I'm smart enough, if I market the church right, if I'm glossy and polished enough, people will want to come to my church. And a certain amount of that may be true, but I'm telling you, if man builds it, it'll crumble. 
You better let the preaching of the Word of God build it. You better let the Holy Spirit bring them in. You better, if, you better let God build the house because if He doesn't build it, we're laboring in vain. Paul said that he found boundless energy for the ministry by drawing strength from the Savior. You know what Jesus said? John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can... Let's read that again. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm weak. I'm fallible. I mess up. I sin. I need Jesus every day. Amen? Listen to what Max Lucado wrote in one of his books. This is so powerful. He said... Imagine how your life would change overnight if someone deposited millions of dollars into your checking account. With Christ in you, He said, you have a million resources you did not have before. Can't stop drinking? Christ in you can, and He lives there. Can't stop worrying? Christ can, and He lives within you. Can't forgive the jerk or forgive the past or forsake the bad habit? Christ can, and He lives in you. When are we going to believe it, church? You see, one of the dangers of modern Christianity is that we become consumers. You say, what do you mean, preacher? We come into church like it's fast food drive through And we get our little shot of Jesus, and then we go on our merry way. And bless God, there's some people who will never lift a finger. They won't serve, they won't give, they won't sing. Like a knot on a log, they won't do anything except complain. Look at what verse 29 says. This is an indictment against lazy Christianity. He says, I toil, I struggled with all energy. You better not be a lazy preacher. You better not be a lazy deacon. You better not let the grass grow under your feet, child of God. You better toil. You better strain. You better exert spiritual sweat. Why? Because if I didn't give my best to Jesus, I'd be ashamed to call myself a Christian. I'd rather burn out than rust out for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can tell you first and foremost that building the church and reaching the lost and preaching the gospel will leave you utterly exhausted at the end of the day. It will exhaust you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, every way that you can measure it. And friend, one thing I'm learning at the end of the day as a preacher, you know what? There's very little that I can control. I can't make anybody want to read their Bible. I can't make anybody want to be dedicated to Jesus. I can't make somebody want to serve Him. Only God can do that. And only God can make the change in the heart of that person. And that person has to allow God to do His work in them. In his heyday, Charles Spurgeon was a whirlwind of activity. He preached several times a week, pastored the largest church in the world, wrote books and articles faster than anyone could read them, and still found time to hit up an orphanage and a Bible college. Reporter from the London newspaper asked him, Mr. Spurgeon, how are you so productive? Here's what he said. Sir, you've forgotten. There's two of us. It's Charles Spurgeon and Christ in me. Thank God that when I feel like quitting, Christ in me says, no, 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 we're not done yet. Thank God when temptation strikes, 
Christ in me rises up and said, Satan, get thee behind me. Thank God when I don't know what to say, Christ in me rises up and speaks. Thanks, thank God that when I can't change, Christ in me says, my grace is sufficient for you today. When the situation looks bleak and the way is hard, friend, thank God Christ in me says, I am for you. I am with you. Don't give up now. You just keep going because I'm not done with the blessing yet. Thank God because of Christ in me, I can go on another day. I can preach another message. I can sing one more song. Why? It's the hope of glory that just is busting out of the life that Christ has given me. Oh, friend, if we believed it as a church, I'm telling you, this whole town would be different. This church would be different. Our lives and our families. Heard about a little boy who came from a Christian family. He was diagnosed with a heart problem. True story. The doctor was meeting with the family. The doctor was going to perform a surgery on the boy's heart. And the, the doctor was not a believer. He was a skeptic. In fact, the doctor was from another country over in Asia somewhere. Well, the day before the surgery, the doctor explained to the little boy what he had to do. He said, now son, I'm going to I'm going to have to cut right here and point it to his chest. and I'm going to have to make an incision and, and go inside your chest. and I'm going to look at your heart. Are you scared? He asked the little boy. And the boy said, well, don't worry, Doc. If you cut open my heart, you know what you're going to find? You'll find Jesus in there. Well, the, doctor, the doctor heard that. And you talk about the proverbial pebble in the shoe. I mean, that just didn't sit right with that doctor. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, right? That so baffled and troubled this doctor. He went back into his office. And he started Googling. Jesus. Heart. Gospel. One search led to another search. He's watching YouTube videos of preachers. preachers and late into the night, he understood who he was and who Jesus was. And that he needed to repent and give his life to the Lord. He did. Well, a few days after the surgery, the doctor was meeting with the boy and his family. And he told them, look, that the surgery was a success. I don't think you'll have any more problems. And the little boy turned to the doctor and said, So, hey, doc, when you looked in my heart, what did you find? And the doctor said, with tears running down his cheeks, he said, Son, I found Jesus. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Let's have a time of invitation today, please, as our musicians are coming. God has been working in this church today. I don't know what your need is today, but our altar is open. For those that need salvation, hey, there's still room at the cross. For those who need a prayer to be prayed, this altar will be the place to do it. You just need somebody to hug you and encourage you. Hey, we can do that too. Preston's going to lead us. Will you please stand? Will you be obedient to God right now as He calls you?